This week on A to Z Running, we wrap up our biosensor series by examining with Meredith Cass one of the most important aspects for runners, hydration. In running news, NCAA cross-country conference action was crazy, including some upsets and more predictable outcomes and more. Big Dog's Backyard Ultra saw the world's best meet and they did not disappoint. How fast can 11-year-olds run? Well, it's pretty fast. We'll talk about that later. All this and more this week on A to Z Running. Welcome back to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive with information, inspiration, and training services. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. And just a reminder that you can learn more about our services and supports for runners at a to z running.com and follow us on the places where you like to follow people. We're on Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, and stuff like that. <laughs> is that is, does that capture it well? Uh, yeah, we're on the places, except for TikTok. We're not on TikTok. A lot of people are trying to convince me lately. If you have a good argument, feel free to message me, but What's I'm not convinced yet. It's the video. It's pretty much all like reels on Instagram, which I'm not sure you know what those are. Simple and very important question. Mm -hmm. Are serious people doing serious things on TikTok? Yeah. Both. I do not believe Silly you. things and serious things. I don't believe it. It's informative and bit. fun. That's what I hear anyways. We will never be on TikTok. <laughs> But that's okay because that's okay. you can hear our voice from every place that has places where you can hear voices. And you can find us on a com, which is a way better website than TikTok. I can assure you. <laughs> well, let's get started with your questions. Update for you. If you have been trying to ask us questions in the last week or so, You've encountered the fact that our website has had some problems, and that's okay because that happens once in a while with technologies. But you can always still ask us questions, even if the website's not working, by emailing questions at a to z running.com. Oh, that's new. Yeah, right. That's why I said update. Nice. So we're going to just use that. You can also certainly use the website form, but you know, let's be honest. Website forms are an added layer of steps that you don't have to do if you don't want to. You can just send an email direct, questions at a to z running.com. I like it. Email or us. you can send us messages on Instagram. Like I got one from Ben this week. Great question. He writes this. I am running a pancake flat marathon in six weeks, attempting to qualify for Boston. I live in an area that is quite hilly. My mm. standard easy run routes range from 90... 50 to 90 feet of climbing per mile. Significant. Yeah. I typically, well, compared to us, I guess. I typically do specific hill-related speed work once every couple weeks as well, and my normal long run routes typically have 40 to 60 feet of climbing per mile. I do 400 meter and 800 meter runs on a nearby track from time to time. My marathon is in a little over six weeks, so the focus of training is shifting to longer marathon pace type intervals. 
there are a couple places I can drive to where I have two to three blocks that are relatively flat. Mm. And even long runs where I'd have only like 20 to 30 feet of climbing per mile. Since the marathon is so flat, would it behoove me to focus on flatter routes these last six weeks or maybe do my easy runs with all the climbing and do the quality work on flatter routes? That's Mm. his question. Behoove. Behoove. Thank well, you for using such great I, words. I know. I was actually thinking when I said that word, I'm like, Zach would use that word. And he oh. concludes with, thanks again for your help. You've All the help you've been on this journey. Would love to hear your thoughts on this if you have time. But understand if you don't. Well, we certainly have time. And thank you for letting us share it on the podcast, Ben. So, Ben, it's an important question. Um, it is necessary for things like marathons uh, to try to be as prepared as possible for the course and course conditions. That includes both the nature of the course itself and things like weather and such. Uh, it's it's a long enough event that if it, something simple as poor acclimation to a race day condition can totally throw us off, especially if you're trying to really maximize performance to the best possible opportunity. So you're running a flat course, which often means fast. But if you're coming from regular hilly running, it doesn't always mean fast for you if you're not ready for it. And that's, so that's why it's an apt question. Um, Two things. First, well, more than two things, but two things immediately come to my mind. First is um, I wouldn't worry too much about it because the hilliness of your hilly running is not so dramatic or so extreme in comparison to a flat course that it's going to be like you're unprepared for running on flatter ground. Um, It doesn't sound that way based on your descriptions. Um, So it's not a major concern. It should not be for you. Um, Secondly, it, it would be valuable to have some long, substantial running on like as flat as possible of ground if, in fact, you're running on a totally flat marathon course because it, it is different. It's mm-hmm. not the same thing. Well, one of the things that hills do for you that flat running does not is it activates different muscle groups that remind your body to be working all together. Where flat flatter routes, a lot of times when you fatigue, some of your muscle groups will shut down if you don't reactivate them. So the benefit of getting on a flatter course is to be able to work through that. And also like you have, you're working the same muscle groups over and over in the same way. And so getting used to that, so you don't fatigue to the point of having like some sort of muscular issue when you're running. Yeah. It's an, it's an interesting statistic, but on the whole, on average, Runners report higher levels of soreness after running on flat marathon courses than hilly. Well, that makes sense. You're using yes, the muscles is. in the same way over and over and over and over, and you don't get reprieve of different incline. So you, you have a you have two options here, um, and you should do both of them. The one is it's not bad to pursue some flat routes. I would do uh, your longest easy running on flat routes. Um, the fast running doesn't, it, it's not going to matter. It's not going to make a difference for you if you're doing shorter efforts, whether they're on flat or not. But it, do, it does matter in some ways because in the final six weeks, you would be doing a strength phase, phase which we would recommend doing hills for strength purposes. Yes, but that's not that's not but, the point I'm making. But for this specific question, To acclimate yeah. to flat yeah. r- for the course, it doesn't matter how fast you're running or not. It matters how long you're running because that's the thing that's going to do what is going to happen to you in the marathon. Which is what is well, that's what Andy was describing. You need to be ready to run on unchanging ground conditions for long periods of time. So, long, easy running. If you have a, a long run route that you can get to that's as flat as possible, 
it'd be a good idea to run your long runs for the next few weeks on flat ground. And if you're if you have another tempo, which you should with six weeks to go, I would recommend doing that flat course course. I don't know if that's the word you'd use flat route with the shoes that you will be choosing to wear for your race. So do the hard effort flat ground with your shoes. That's a recommendation I have so that nothing is surprising okay. you when you get to race day. Okay. So you got two different recommendations from Andy and Zach <laughs> this time. And you can take or leave both of them. I would them. say, no, I would say you should do both. Like you do the long, easy running, but I also would put all the pieces together in a somewhat kind of like tempo rehearsal on flat ground with the shoes that you plan to wear on flat ground because that changes how your biomechanics work. Yeah. So I guess, I guess the point is if you want to do like almost everything on flat ground, my, my assumption based on your message here is that it's not terribly convenient for you to find a flat route. So if that's the case, then Andy and Zach have to debate which one <laughs> we think it should be your priority. I think it's the long, easy running. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not trying to take the last word. Do you need to have one more word before we no. Okay. All right. So <laughs> All of the above. But here's the point. There's another thing you can do as well that you should do in training a bit so that this isn't like totally new to you in the race, but it's it's a race day strategy. And that is teach yourself some ways to check in with your running mechanics and do a manual reset while you're in the midst of the run. Um, because what's going to happen is when you're running on the flat ground, unchanging conditions, um, it's very easy to fall into ruts as you fatigue. So... So Andy was intimating at the very beginning. Um, the hills do that for you automatically when you're running. They create a kind of reset in your biomechanics because you're shifting your mechanical function a little bit. So as you race in this marathon, you want to be able to do the same thing because it is going to help you whether or not you're prepared to run on flat ground. So do this in some training runs. Once again, probably best to do them in the longer easy efforts because it's going to simulate the thing the most likely. Uh, but do something like the like swingers zombie drills, for instance, would be a good example. And Andy likes to address that one better than I can. What do you do when you can? do the zombie drills? Oh, like which ones do you do? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't you do, do the them ever. You're the zombie, one who does them. So you do you know. the front zombie, you do the pencil zombie. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what those are. Well, I will send them to you, Ben. Oh, my. Look at that. <laughs> Concierge service. I'll, I'll send them via uh, Instagram where you sent me this message. So that's one example. Um, zombie drills are good. Another one is uh, Coach Hodge has these kind of few suggestions that he gives. One is like uh, straightening up and it involves imagining that you're like connected by a wire from the top of your head and hanging by a wire. And so you kind of straighten up a little bit. It's always good to have those types of posture checks. Um and then just always think about when you're fatiguing on the run, think about how you're lifting your heels and your knees, those two focal points. And as you're being deliberate with that, you can't do that the entire race the whole time because that would just wear you out mentally, mentally. Uh, but that's a good check-in occasionally. Just think about, okay, how am I, how am I moving my knees right now? And as you think about it, you'll be able to kind of tighten it up a bit or make a slight adjustment. Great. Do that in your training first. Mm-hmm. Don't wait till race day to try those things for the first time. Okay, so there you go, Ben. You've got a few different things to consider here, but the immediate answer is correct in your suspicions. It would be good to try to acclimate or adapt. And if you can't, or if you can't as much as, quote, would be ideal, don't stress about it because you'll be fine. You'll be great. 
In fact, good luck to you. And we'll, yeah. I would love to hear how it goes for you, Ben. Keep us posted. Right on. Thanks for the question, Ben. And with that, let's get on to something helpful. If you missed it, last week we interviewed CEO of Nix Biosensors, Meredith Cass, and specifically asked her about the biosensing industry. And in our interest of understanding what's going on in the industry better and being able to see kind of from the insider perspective, um, it was a great conversation. And so go back and listen to that if you'd like to. Um, it would be helpful because as we're trying to investigate the topic here, we're going to end our investigation this week with a more direct look at a single sensor and functionally why this thing helps runners. So here we have guest again, Nick's Biosensors is led by founder and CEO Meredith Cass, a graduate of Harvard Business School, former vice chair and nine time marathoner, as we shared last week. And remember, since the launch of Nix's first product last December, the Nix Hydration Biosensor, Meredith was selected for Inc.'s 2023 Female Founder 200 list for developing a biotechnological solution that helps soldiers, athletes, and hard labor workers stay adequately hydrated. And so, that being quite the claim, we thought it would be valuable to ask her about that technology specifically and how it functions, why it helps, and what it does for runners on both both angles of the thing. How does it help you when you're in the midst of a thing in the moment? And how does it help you better prepare for and hone your practice of hydrating for your running? So as noted, uh, we're gonna continue the conversation here. We're gonna jump right into kind of like the middle of it um, so that we can get the close examination of the Nix product and especially why the actionable functions of our sport are so valuable to address and how technologies like this can best help us do it. So let's get back into our conversation with Meredith. One of our pursuits right now is what are the ideas and options and products that are doing the good thing in the way that kind of meets your standard that you set forth, um, you know, putting these things in the health in the hands, health in the hands of consumers, but in an affordable elegant pricing. I appreciate that. Um, so that brings us to Nix. I think this is a good moment to uh, transition specifically into why this product uh, in terms of what is this one doing and how is it addressing that big vision that you laid out? Yeah. I mean, that vision is pretty lofty and that really does drive kind of all the decisions that we're making. And that vision, again, just being around um, introducing these new tools, these biosensors that can help quantify and kind of, um, I hate the phrase democratizing data, but that is really kind of what's happening. We're trying to like, how do we, how do we leverage what we know from the healthcare system, put that data in users' hands um, in ways that they can act on it um, on a day-to-day -day basis outside a traditional setting of care. And so I, I think it's kind of fun and exciting to think about all of the ranges of applications that fall under that vision. And if we're doing something consumer facing, it stands to reason that the, you know, the molecular electrochemical um, analysis that our tools are doing is probably going to take place on, let's say, like a, a bodily fluid or some other kind of sample that's non-invasive um, or at least non-invasive enough that you don't have to be at the doctor to access it. 
And so if we think about that for just a moment about, you know, all of the sort of incredible amounts of data that are available through things like sweat, tears, saliva, even breast milk. I mean, it's like think of the number of molecules that are that are presented in those samples. And that gets us really excited. Um, you know, I think we settled on hydration not only as a as a first case of hopefully many going forward, because um at the end of the day, we were talking about scalability. I mean, hydration is fundamental to human performance on every level and for every individual. And it it does give us these use cases and user types like endurance athletes in our early days where it's kind of a no-brainer where, you know, hydration management for a runner is a no-brainer. We're all already thinking about it. Um, but the hope is that at some point, at some point in the future, you know, we think about hydration as a vital sign, just like blood pressure and, you know, um, blood oxygen and your height and weight that really should probably be measured every time you go to the doctor, because it's going to impact every other test that gets done that day. So, uh, so it's a pretty lofty vision that, you know, in our early days here as an eight person company that, you know, we're starting really focused. Yeah. Ah, that's um, you, you alluded to even there that, yes, this is something that's obvious to endurance athletes, but it's relevant to all people all the time. Yeah. And immediately reminded me of the time that this wasn't that long ago. In fact, my dad, who um, does construction work, uh, was building a deck one summer and outside all day on a Saturday and uh, in the sun. And it was a hot day in particular. Um, and he knew, you know, it's, it, I'm going to need to hydrate well. Right. So he had this ginormous, it was like a five gallon, you know, thing of, of water. And he was drinking it all day long. Now he ended up in the ER at the end of the day. And of course the immediate question, people say, well, what, what happened there? What went wrong? Doctor tells him you were drinking plenty of water and no electrolytes whatsoever. He was just drinking water. So that's yeah. when my dad learned that that's why Gatorade was invented. Right. Um, yeah. well, as, as it happens in that moment, if he's got, for instance, a sensor on his arm while he's out there working on this deck, um, then he doesn't have to wonder, am I drinking enough water or did I get enough electrolytes? He would be able to know when he should be drinking. So I'm, I'm, I'm exactly jumping right. the gun a little bit here, but that, that fascinates me. And as you, as you say it, I'm like, well, of course, There's, what's the, what's the best kind of, um, service is the word I'm going to use here. It's a product, but what's the best kind of service we can do for people with these types of things? And the answer is, well, the thing that everyone needs is where we start. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. So t yeah. tell me more then about how Nix achieves that end as you are describing it. Yeah. I mean, so what we're doing right now is um, measuring the sweat directly. So as you're losing it, we're pulling it off the surface of the skin, totally non-invasively. We're measuring it right there in the patch, doing all sorts of analytics, but the data that we then process and send to the user, whether it's on their phone or their Garmin watch or their bike computer or their Apple watch, whatever they're using, we're going to give you cumulative fluid losses over time, cumulative electrolyte losses over time. We're going to give you the opportunity to get alerts at intervals of your choosing. So I like to get alerts, let's call it every four ounces, something manageable where I can drink those four ounces and then keep moving. And, you know, there's no point in time where I'm being told I need to drink 20 ounces or something absurd. Um, and so all of that data you can get in real time while you're out on the roads. Um, so it's almost like that little coach in the ear, that very much like do this now type of feedback. 
That's really the core of the problem that we're trying to solve for endurance athletes. The secondary part of that is that we're going to capture all of that data throughout the various workouts that you're going to use it for. And we're going to correlate that to the environment that you were operating in. So was it hot and humid? Was it cold and overcast? Was it windy and you were at altitude? We're going to capture all of those environmental features, which have a huge impact on your sweat rate. That part, I think, is pretty intuitive. The part that's maybe less intuitive is that for one individual, as we sweat faster, the concentration of electrolytes in our sweat actually increases. So even for one person, if you now are doing intervals, let's say, or it's a, a more intense workout one day, or it's hotter and more humid, and so you are sweating faster, you are losing electrolytes faster at a higher concentration than when it was lower. And so there's real value in kind of capturing that, what we call your, your sweat profile and starting to understand how sensitive you are specifically to heat versus humidity versus altitude as compared to somebody else. And then the final piece is then we can take that historical database, if you will, that personal database and keeping in mind, this accounts for, you know, the fact that there's variability between you and me, you've got your sweat profile, I've got mine. And we can leverage that into a predictive model where now maybe it's race day or maybe it's just another long run day. And you need to understand in the same way that we're all like, what do I wear today based on today's weather? Now we can also say to ourselves, what are my fluid and electrolyte needs going to be today? How much do I need to be drinking? Right on, right on. That uh, the, the case study of uh, one of our runners who uh, goes to the lab, you know, to get the the sweat tests, evaluations, and recommendations. And that's a single instance, right? And it's in a lab setting, which that's adds, right. you know, layers of, well, uh, obfuscation, I guess, to the data. Yeah. But so he comes back from that and says, okay, I've got all these recommendations now. I'm going to apply the same recommendations to every instance where I'm doing the thing. And that, you know, when we start to think about it, that doesn't make any sense. That Of that's course, right. it wouldn't be the same if the conditions are different, but also you have one data points, you need a lot more than that to potentially yeah. create this predictive model. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yep. And when we stop to think about the different factors that will make your sweat rate change, and then again, in turn, make your electrolyte loss rate change. I mean, it's massive. It's all of those environmental elements. It's the intensity of your workout. It's, it's the, the clothing or the gear that you might be wearing. Um, it's whether you're sick we're finding menstrual cycle, caffeine consumption. I mean, these can all have impacts that we're just starting to learn about that, you know, if you're not measuring it for yourself, then as you were saying a, a few minutes ago, then then quite literally you're guessing. And when the consequences of guessing it wrong are as high as they are, and God forbid on race day, you hit the wall because you didn't know your data, then you've just spent four to six months training for that day, you know? You've, you've sold us, right? You just sold us right there because the consequence <laughs> is so high. And that's exactly right. And it's not, you know, we talk about all the time with runners that we put too much pressure on ourselves to perform in that like culminating moment. Yeah. And, um, and part of that pressure and expectation risks or jeopardizing performance. But Absolutely. as it, as it were, you could take some of the worry away with something like this, but you put, you know, you, we put all our eggs in that one basket and, um, if the mindset of the runner, if if I can stay at this generally, is do everything I can to make that the best possible experience or a chance of the best possible experience. And Absolutely. so 
Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, as as I was learning, you know, sort of the sport and and kind of trying to pick things up. I mean, for me, the goal is literally like I want to hit the finish line, like with my hands in the air instead of like crawling over the finish line on all fours. And so anything that I can do to then just, you know, almost have like a little safety net of like, all right, I'm not going to hit the wall from nutrition. I'm not going to hit the wall from fitness. I'm not going to hit the wall from hydration. If you can just have like a little safety, you know, insurance policy against one of those, it feels worth it. That's, that's exactly right. Worth it for sure. Um, I'm So I'm curious in terms of um, how that's possible, like how, how can this technology take such a, essentially what seems like such a small sampling, sweat sample and produce this kind of information in a reliable manner? What's going on there? So we're basically doing exactly what you described. We're taking a local sample on the arm where the patch is placed. We use a machine learning algorithm there to understand the flow rate that's happening in that local um, location. So both the flow rate of the fluids of the sweat um, and then the electrolyte concentration of that same sweat. And then we have another set of algorithms that then extrapolates that sweat profile to the full surface area of the body. And so we're taking into account this sort of multi-regression that you're going to sweat differently on the chest or the leg or the back than you do on the arm. It factors all of that in. And then it accumulates that um, fluid loss and electrolyte loss over time. So it is very similar to the example you just gave of somebody going into a lab and having those things measured um, sort of in real time. It's just that we're doing it continuously passively, which I think is important. You're not having to take an active measurement. It's just tallying that data for you um, and doing that over the whole course of the workout. Yeah, right on. And uh, and and that's an interesting, so it tells you somewhere, I, don't, I was reading it while I was you know, learning about it to use it. Um, it tells you somewhere like, you know, you could put this other places, but we want you to put it right there because the, the algorithms are understanding that to be the case, which means you know, in, in the, this kind of sense, like it does make a difference um, and how we collect data and then how we interact with with these things. Uh, so the level of precision, I think is in, in some senses, it's a positive thing. And so that's one layer where you're you're able to take that small sample, you're able to extrapolate and then apply. Um, now, the other side of it then is there's some other things that are user input conditionals. And I'm, I'm very curious because I can put into the system things like how often I want, you know, the quantity. So you said four ounces. I, I put into it two ounces um, mm-hmm. just arbitrarily. That was kind of, yeah. eh, well, I guess not arbitrarily. That's how much I like to drink at a time when I'm in a race. I like to just drink regularly as opposed to yeah. more periodically. Um, but that being the case, it also says things like what's your pace or maybe your average pace. Um, yeah. which I found it fascinating. I was curious why it's asking that too. And, and so with some of those other user input uh, points, how is it then taking those things and what's the interaction there? Yeah, great question. Because some of those questions that we ask in the profile setup truly are inputs to the algorithms and some of them aren't. Okay. So the one, the only ones that are actually inputs to the algorithm are um, your height and weight because we're using your surface area to calculate the local to full body. Um, and then the pace we actually use to calculate respiratory water losses. So if you when you go for a run in the winter and you can see your breath, that's actually water vapor. Um, so we use your pace to calculate the METs. It helps us understand, you know, um, because we're not measuring VO2 max, for example, through the patch. 
it helps us understand based on your relative pace. And um, we already have sort of your height and weight, so we can estimate your stride length and things like that. Um, we can get a sense for how much water you're actually exhaling on an hourly basis, which is really incredible. Um, and it, you know, it took us some trial and error to really realize that that was such an important component because it's, I mean, depending on the individual and and their workout and their their personal chemistry, I mean, it can be substantive. It can be like two to 11 ounces per hour that's being lost just through breath. Um, so those are the inputs. Your question was about, you know, sort of filling out the profile. Those are the actual inputs to the model. Everything else that we ask you for, race, gender, age, all of that is actually metadata that we're now analyzing anonymously, of course, and in aggregate on the back end to start to understand how we can quantify the things that we already anecdotally know to be true about men sweating more than women or, um, you know, body mass index and how that might impact your sweat rate, things like that. So, um, you know, really, I think the cool thing about biosensing in general is that it's truly personalized. So it's not like the calorimeter on your sport watch, which is just making generic calculations. Um, this really is about measuring what's happening for you personally. And, and that's, that's part of what is encouraging about the product is um, the, the comprehensive attempt to address this, not just uh, we've got this interesting data point that we're going to try to get in consumers' hands as easily and quickly yeah. as possible. But I, I, I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, I think that that's where, that's where we, as a consumer, how do I vet the potential products I leverage and the potential things that I try to integrate into my training experience? Um, and these are things worth considering. I am curious. Now, this is a very much total aside and unrelated, but it just it popped into my head, so I wanted to ask it. Um, we we hear constantly from the apparel companies why it's certain why it's valuable to wear certain types of apparel with the moisture interactions with some of that kind of stuff. Um, if it's a hot day, do you wear something that like covers your skin, or do you have as little covered as possible, and all of those kinds of things? What's your thought if if you want to share any thoughts on those things? Yeah, this is such a good question because it makes a huge impact. And I, I can't disclose who, but we are working with some of those brands to actually help them do research on those different types of fabrics and the thermoregulatory properties of them. Um, so the long and short is, you know, when we're thinking about thermoregulation, and forgive me for breaking it down to sort of real basic steps here, um, when our core body temperature rises above a certain level, give or take 98.6 degrees, um, it triggers sweating. And the sweating that we have on our skin, it's the evaporation of that that's going to cool the body. So if we think about things that are going to impede the ability for that sweat to evaporate and cool the body, those are kind of that's that's the kind of gear you're not going to want to wear when it's you know you've got a propensity for heat and humidity. So um, the wicking is really about how do we just promote this this sweat coming off the surface of the skin so that more sweat can be produced and it can you know continue to keep this person cool. Um, we're all pretty aware cotton doesn't really do that. Cotton will keep that that you know sweaty shirt or whatever it is directly on your skin. It's going to impede that evaporation and ultimately it is going to it's physically uncomfortable, but it's also going to keep you warmer. Um, overall. So it's, I mean, it's super fascinating to think about that stuff. And that's why even in the winter, and we are in fact sweating in the winter, I will say, you know, we get this question a lot is in general, we are sweating more slowly in the winter than we are in the summer. But when you add in gear and jackets and layers and hats and things like that, 
Um, the real key difference that sometimes makes us think we're not sweating at all is evaporation and that it's happening. Evaporation happens at a certain rate that can be hard to calculate because it is related to temperature and humidity and dew point um, with respect to the environmental conditions. Um, but if evaporation is happening faster than sweat, you might think you're not sweating when in reality you probably are. So it's a really interesting question. I mean, just further, you know, fodder for the whole argument that there's all these myriad um, factors that are going to impact your sweat rate and your electrolyte loss rate. And trying to keep mental math on those is probably a very tall task. Right, right. That it is. Well, okay. So in, in trying to then the the person who says, all right, I'm sold on the, the value and need. What is it? What is a optimal use case look like here? Should someone be wearing something like this every single day for every single kind of run or effort? Is there a kind of like use it in these certain capacities through this certain period of time to generate the best possible profile? What, what does that look like? I think there are a couple use cases. And at the end of the day, we really tried to build the system so that different athletes at different levels with different goals can really make it theirs. Um, but I would say as a base case, you know, if we think about our long run as sort of um, dress rehearsal for race day week after week, um, wearing it, you know, for your long run um, on the weekends at a minimum probably makes really good sense. Now, maybe you don't need it for like your, you know, midweek three to five mile runs, um, but we see a lot of runners that really want to be able to compare, for example, their long run data with their speed work data, because you're gonna find a very different sweat profile in those two circumstances. Um, similarly, if you're training, and we're here in Boston, where anyone who's trained locally for the Boston Marathon, usually you start you know, January 1st or so, and you're going through sort of mid-April, you're gonna find a very wild swing of weather in that, in that time frame in Boston. Or if you're training through the summer for a fall race, um, you're going to find the same thing. It's just sort of the nature of the beast with spring and fall races. So we think it's incredibly valuable to be able to use that, if nothing else, every week on long run day, as the weather is changing, as your mileage is changing, your pace may or may not be changing. For most people, they're pretty consistent long run to long run. Um, but there are myriad other factors that are changing week over week. So if you know having that sort of more um, dialed in sweat profile over time, that historical database, if you will, um, is valuable, then it really is necessary to kind of capture that in a range of different environments, ranging from the very cold and overcast all the way to the hot and humid. Yeah, yeah, that and that makes perfect sense. That was um, when I first started trying the product. That was one of the things I initially was doing just out of curiosity. Well, I wonder if it's different in the morning and at night. And I wonder if it's different when I'm running fast or slow when I'm running yeah. in cloudy days or I mean, it was at the time it was still summer when I first started using it. So everything was hot at the time. But yeah, um, absolutely. So so then uh, just just a kind of a layer to that then, because you you mentioned one of the things that it's doing is it's producing a recommendation. I noticed in the the data provided and I wasn't sure how I got to this, so I'm not exactly sure where it gives us this information, but it gave my sweat profile and then compared it against uh, the common products on the market and hydration yeah. products on the market and said, OK, so here's all this stuff. And it clearly has like, here's the best match given that run, that sweat profile at that moment, um, which is what I was looking at. And so immediately I see something like that and I think this is this is really interesting because 
what we know as, as runners leading up to a race is they'll tell us, here's the products that are available on the course. Here's, uh, you know, what you can expect as a runner that is available to you. Um, and if I have my own information here in hand, does that change then? So if, if Martin fits somewhere on the scale and Martin's fits somewhere on my, uh, or in the race, they're providing it. I, I imagine that changes how I interact with the actual specific options as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I'm glad you bring this up because a, a, a fluid deficit and an electrolyte deficit are two different things. And so if you're, you know, you could be drinking plenty of the, of the fluids and replenishing all of those, but to your point a minute ago about your dad or, or the day that I got hyponatremic, if you're not pacing electrolyte replenishment right alongside the fluid um, replenishment, you're still risking a performance impairment and muscle cramps and all sorts of things that are going to make recovery more difficult. So the long and short of it is if you understand your own sweat composition on sort of literally a, a milligram per ounce basis, so I can understand like for every ounce of my sweat, how many milligrams of electrolytes are in there, you can compare that against this you know, massive range of beverages that we have at our disposal where, you know, looking at the labels in the past, we have no data upon which to decide, am I a, a Morton or a Scratch or a Gatorade person? And so the key is, um, first and foremost, you can either figure out which formulation is best for you, or if you have a brand loyalty, or if it's what they have on the course, or maybe you're sponsored and you're one of the lucky ones who's really fast, then you might have a product that you're loyal to. I happen to love Scratch. I know the founder, we've been friends for a while, so I'm very loyal to Scratch, but it is a lot higher concentration than my sweat happens to be. So what I can do is then figure out the right ratio of product to water of scratch, which is a formulation my my gut already enjoys um, and a flavor I already enjoy. And then I can still get the right formulation for myself. And so the idea being there, if you put in a workout that says, hey, Zach, you lost 22 ounces per hour and your sweat composition was 43 now you know that you can go pick out scratch, drink, what did I just say? 22 ounces per hour of that. And in theory, you'll be fully replenished on both sides. Right. Ah, that's so good. I love it. I told you before, I love, I love the data stuff, uh, but more specifically, the being able to have in hand the knowledge to make that best choice, that's it's invaluable for, for athletes, but you know, for anybody. Yeah. So I got to be mindful of our time here. And so we, in, in thinking about the best way to draw this to a close, um, what, it, as you perceive the industry and Nix's place in the industry, Meredith, um, why this is a summarizing, cause you've, we've answered this, we discussed it a bit here, but why do we want to be pursuing these kinds of things as consumers and, um, and, and what's going to make the difference for us? Yeah, I think as consumer consciousness has continued to trend toward holistic health and wellness, and not just this sort of episodic sick care that we might get in the healthcare industry, we've all become so much more aware of the things that we need to do on a day-to-day -day basis in between doctor visits. They're going to keep us healthy and thriving. This, you know, this concept of human performance as a general category and so we need to be able to have those tools at our disposal to, first of all, inform those strategies and then monitor how we're doing along the way. 
And so again, we hope that hydration is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. I could tell you 10 other applications of biosensors that I think would be hugely helpful, at least for me personally in my life. Um, and I really do think that as innovation continues and if companies are able to successfully commercialize in an accessible, affordable and scalable way, then there will be more and more demand and support for additional applications going forward. Well, I hope so. At least if they're uh, if they're half as good as Nick's, then we're we're moving in the right direction. That's that's the thought, at least. Well, Meredith, thank you so much for your time here. You, you've you've given generously um, both of your time and and your knowledge and insights, and um, certainly hope that our audience will continue to follow your product specifically um, on account of the good things that it clearly is doing for people. It's, it's just a wonderful thing. Um, so that being the case, what would be the best avenue for people to pay attention to Nix and what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, come check out our product on the website, nixbiosensors.com. It's got all the information you could want to know, not only about the product, but about um, hydration trends in general, um, all that kind of stuff. Lots of case studies, a lot of professional athletes that we've worked with and some of their personal data. So you can see how your data compares. Um, so come check us out there. Right on. Well, thanks again, and I hope that uh, hope that there's continues to be better and brighter with the company there and the work that you're doing. Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, thanks again, Meredith, Thank for you. all of your time and mm -hmm. your insights and knowledge of the industry and for sharing about your product specifically. Um, we're, we're glad to take the opportunity to look at things like that because as runners, it's important for us to understand what these things can do for us and what their limitations may be. Um, and I think that's one of the important reflections I always have with this kind of stuff is like, you know, we, we say it so often on the podcast here, but we want runners to be more intuitive in the way we do things. There's, there's a massive trend right now in the running world at large to um, create dependencies. And I don't know if it's, I don't know what, where exactly the trend comes from, but there is some, there are some data that support some of these things. And so we get a convolution of some legitimate things and some other things that are just unnecessary or are not terribly helpful or are potentially counterproductive. And we're trying to sift through all of that. So if there's a kind of summarizing reflection about biosensors here as we're wrapping up the series now at this point, um, it is to fully understand what the biosensor technology you might be using, what that does, and is it giving you actionable data that addresses an improvement in the function as a runner? And can you leverage that to become more intuitive in the way you do it as well? Mm. It does not behoove us to use Ben's word from our question segment. It does not behoove us to become runners who are dependent on technologies plugged into our bodies at all times to be optimized. That is not the way to go. And so knowing that, what are ways that we can use these technologies to develop ourselves as better, wholesome runners. And I think this one fits the bill for ones that can potentially help with that. Great. Well, thank you, Marinette. Let's get on to the world of running. Well, off air, Zach and I just arm wrestled for who would be able to share our world of running A to Z runner updates. Well, the fact that you're speaking and means I clearly won. we didn't arm wrestle for it. 
come now. Uh, okay, maybe he would. He gave the win to me. Anyway, Monumental Marathon was awesome. We had some really great performances from A to Z runners and friends of ours who we heard, many of you who ran at the Indie Monumental Run. Jacob ran a four-minute marathon PR. Laura ran an incredible marathon debut. Laura S. ran a 20-minute PR, and her previous PR was 15 years ago, so she's crushing it. That's a different Laura, by the way. That's two, two different, different Lauras. Laura's. Yeah. Madeline ran her first marathon since baby, and Mallory ran an eight-minute PR. Nice job, cuz. So exciting. And in the half marathon, we had two runners and two incredible performances. CJ ran a seven-minute PR in his half marathon, and Kyle also ran a seven-minute PR. Does any, is anyone noticing the trend here? PR. If you want to be amazing as a runner, <laughs> you have to do two simple things right now, apparently. You have to run with A to Z running and run monumental. Those are the two things. If you do those two things, you know, amazing things are going to happen, right? Well, the formula for success doesn't have to include <laughs> oh, us not... as your coaches, oh, but it is oh. being being deliberate with your time and your energy and your training and balancing that in some way. I mean, I was in your life I was joking. Thrive. I was joking, Andy. <laughs> but, but also, they had great conditions. It was a great mental. day, yeah. and people were doing amazing things, yeah. and people did some crazy great preparation for those amazing things, mm -hmm. and it just came together. Lots of hard work. Mary won the Team Orphans Halloween 5K, too. She jumped in that. It was kind of a last-minute thing. She's going to do time trial, and she's like, I'll do a 5K, and she ran awesome, and she won. So that's really fun. Right on. Congrats, Mary. Mm -hmm. So moving on now, in the NCAA, cross-country conference action was crazy and interesting. Um, so we, as I said previously, we don't spend a ton of time talking about cross-country, but we love it. Or at least I do. And and I would talk I more about it. I love it. I love following it. Do I love to participate? That is questionable. Well, here's part of the reason why we don't spend a lot of time talking about cross-country during the season. And it was a statement reiterated on uh, Let's Run's summary of the cross-country conference action over the weekend. Which is the regular season of cross-country is like mostly meaningless. Like half the people don't run half the time. It's you get like teams that run like half of their varsity squad every time and you just never know who's going to race. Some that run in mud, some that run and on then, like flat yeah, and dirt. And then you've got people running on like gravel or, or concrete in California and people running in like six inches of mud and swamp in the Midwest. And then somehow you're supposed to say like these are comparable experiences. Not. So it's just this weird thing. Cross country is a strange sport, specifically in the United States. Um, other parts of the world, it's a little bit more like well, no, Regionalized. it's really not. So, I, you know, as I start to say that, if you go do cross country in northern and central Europe, then you're basically going to expect to have to do things like leap over creeks and fences and hurdle all sorts of obstacles while running through six inches of mud. But if you do cross country in southern Europe or northern Africa, then you're going to be running like basically track courses that are close to Packed as dirt. fast <laughs> as you can get on ground that is not track or concrete, right? So it just depends. And, and all of that says it's fascinating, but it's really when you get to championship season where everyone's racing at the same time in the same course that things start to become meaningful, I guess. But one thing that's consistent is that Parker Valby continues to win always. Nice transition. By a lot. <laughs> consistent is the truth this season. Mm -hmm. She has been crushing everybody. 
um, including you know a, a substantial win over Caitlin Tui, which means a lot. But means a lot. Caitlin Tui, defending NCAA cross country champ, who's amazing. Yes, and so if Parker Valby and Tui are considered like the epic rivals of NCAA cross country, then it just got more interesting and just keeps getting more interesting. Valby just looks unstoppable right now, but she's looked that way in the past, and Tui's beaten her, and Tui has looked that way in the past, and Valby's beaten her. So what are we going to get? We don't know, but when when nationals comes around, it's going to be awesome. So I'm suspicious, and I'm interested to know more about Parker Valby's training because her coach says that she only runs two or three days a week. In an interview after the conference, after the ACC, wait, what conference is Florida in? It's not ACC, SEC. So yes, after the SEC conference, um, her coach, which is reasonably new, if you recall, Chris Zielinski was coaching at Florida, then he moved to Oregon, um, and now uh, new coach. And so once again, people ask, well, hey, new coach, is Parker Valby really only running three days a week? And he says, sometimes two. That's his answer. Like, no, no, I don't believe it. I simply do not believe that to be true. Now, you could say, and this is where the caveats will come in. Like, she's just doing all this cross training, but maybe she's doing cross training on like Alter G treadmills, which counts as running. Okay. I know people call that cross training sometimes. Just because you're running with less gravity doesn't mean you're not running. And maybe it's underwater treadmills or something. Still running. So I want to know how much running she actually is doing because I don't believe you that it's two or three days a week. All right. Well, anyway. I'm curious. We again, don't have a clue. Curious. <laughs> we don't know at all. All right. So she's she's running crazy fast as well as beating everyone by lots. I think the, like, the closest anyone's been to her was Tui, and she was like 12 or 15 seconds behind her. So that's Significant. Parker Valby. Mm -hmm. Now in the ACC, things were interesting. On two fronts. First of all, that is uh, NC State's conference. So on the women's side, NC State has not looked as dominant as they have in the past, in large part because, as everyone has been attending to the fact that uh, two of their top five have not been running this season, probably because of injury. Um, but they did run, finally, at their conference meet. And they did not look amazing. Oh. Which is not surprising. You need to kind of shake off the rust a bit when you're coming back from injury and it's your first race of the season and it's cross country. Um, but that that makes people wonder, does NC State really have a good run at the national title again this year or is it going to be someone else's turn? Hmm. Um, so we'll find out. But that, that was an interesting look. We got to see them still take home the ACC title in strong fashion, 37 points, which in cross country is a substantial victory. Uh, but they didn't look it quite like mm. they have in the past. So we'll pay more attention to that. On the men's side of the ACC, the North Carolina men um, who had not won the ACC title since 1985, 38 years ago, and they finally took it again. <laughs> 38 years later, that's a serious drought, and they ended it. So well done. Congrats to the team. They've got a new coach who's been around now only for a handful of years, and in his tenure has improved their ACC result every single year So uh, until they get to, finally they get the victory. So he's probably going to be... He's probably going to be around there for a little while yet. I can't imagine they'll want to lose him anytime soon. So um, that's been going well. 
They've got a stud over there, Parker Wolf, who's going to be a threat come NCAA championship. So it's going to be interesting to see Parker how they do. Parker and Parker, Parker on the women's side, Parker on the men's uh, side. Yes, yeah, that's <laughs> true. I mean, different teams and different conferences, but okay, all right. So um, that's going to be cool. Um, it should be noted not only did they win the conference title, but they also beat four top twenty NCAA teams. So they beat some strong competition, including number four Syracuse, when. Syracuse crushed them a few weeks ago. Mm. So this this just looks great Good for UNC. for them. Certainly that. I did want to mention as well because uh, Wake Forest is in the conference, which means Rocky Hansen, the true freshman who's just been killing it all season, um, he did not run. Hmm. And the, the suspicion is injury. I believe there was actually a comment from the coach that he's got some kind of foot problem, which is a bummer because he's been like having the season of all seasons for a true freshman and it might just be coming to a short end. We'll see if he's back in time for regionals, nationals. Jumping down, we're trying to find. I just went Zach out of order. Zach just on went Andy, crazy so with this cross. I just started going. Um, I did want to mention NAU. Uh, so they're in the Big Sky Conference. They're nationally ranked number one, and there aren't any other ranked teams in their conference. So it's not surprising that the NAU women won their conference title. Hmm. But what they did is somewhat unheard of which is their top seven runners finished in the top seven places. So they, they swept did a, it. It's called a perfect sweep. One through seven in first through seventh place. That's like mercing the other That's teams. more than mercing the other teams. <laughs> That's like the other team just didn't even come out on the field. That's crazy. And just watched That's you score goals the insane. whole time. insane. That does not happen. And so the fact that they did that and we see NC State looking a little fragile – Everyone's saying it's NAU's national title to lose at this point hmm. because they just are looking so dominant. Elise Stearns takes home the title for the meet and certainly is going to be a threat come nationals on the individual side as well. Now, where are we at? Pac-12. Go ahead, Andy. I didn't write this, so I think you should. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, um, Pac-12... As many of you know, which you know far more about this than I do, because I don't really pay that much attention to NCAA politics, but Pac-12 is done as a conference after this year. Oh. They're actually shutting down the conference, the Pac-12 conference. So I know that means things for lots of things. I don't know what those things are. But in cross-country, it means that this was the last Pac-12 championship. And so there's kind of like a badge of who can take the final title, right? Ah. And who was it? Stanford. All Stanford right. men won they win, the final. They, win a lot. they do. It's not surprising. However, what makes this momentous is that prior to winning that title, Stanford and Oregon were tied for the most Pac-12 titles at 16 apiece. And Stanford just won the last one, which means forever and always they will have the most Pac-12 titles of any team. How about that? Bragging rights. Okay. Bragging rights. Kai Robinson, Stanford's stud is he australian or new zealand or kiwi i can't remember but um he if you recall last year won the 5000 10000 double right, at I do track championships that. was just insane well he's been looking great uh, still and so certainly one of the guys to beat when it comes to the national title uh, but it should be noted that stanford signed the the freshman duo lex and leo young the bros yep and they is that what they call themselves on the their youtube channel oh i don't know i don't know either but, i have watched their youtube though it was entertaining yeah anyway so <laughs> they they are true freshmen and have not had the greatest of seasons so far which is not 
bad. You're a freshman. You're not supposed to be like immediate contributors at these powerhouse programs. But Lex Young showed up big for the team at the conference championship, and he's been having a slow improvement over the course of the season. And finishing 12th in the conference as the top true freshman, that looks great. Finishing 4th for Stanford, so he's now contributing and scoring. That's also great. Leo Young did not run. He's been apparently having some injury types of issues of some kind, but he did not run. Now, more on true freshmen later, because as you recall, there's like a, it's a stud freshman class. We'll talk about them more in a moment, but I did want to just mention the big 10, um, mostly because Wisconsin men won another big 10 title. And if anyone's wondering if that's a familiar sound, it's because they've won 54 big 10 cross country titles. 54. So that that's a lot. That's 54 years that Wisconsin has won the title. Has anyone else won a Big 10 cross country title for the men ever? I don't know. But Michigan State's women won on the female side. So a little bit of a shout out to a somewhat home team as it were. Um, and I should mention that Bob liking of Wisconsin won the individual title as well. And why that's significant is because that's number three in a row for liking. And that means if he can win a fourth, he joins an elite group. There's only three men previously who have ever won four straight big 10 titles. And those four, those three men are legendary, including the likes of Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, when he was at Indiana. Yes. In fact, all right. So those are some crazy things. Now let's talk about some superstar freshmen. <laughs> you, you took a breath like you were going to say something. Oh, after we do this, I have okay. another thing to add that we didn't write into into the uh, stuff here. So stay tuned. Okay. About, we NCAA, still have, about nope, NCAA cross country? Nope, so that's why I got to keep going. No, okay, yes. All right. So, all right, here's the deal. Um, the true freshmen – from that that boys freshman class who uh, the boys high school senior class last year they were they were just doing all the things right they were breaking every record just legendary stuff connor burns simeon burnbaum the lex and leo duo aaron salmon right now the question is well where are these guys like what are they doing right now because they're all freshmen in college and pretty much all signed on to major programs somewhere. Well, we've been talking about Rocky Hansen this season. At Wake Forest, he's been just running incredible. Um, a great season. He might be hurt now. Hopefully, he comes back. We'll see. But how about Simeon Birnbaum, for instance, mm. who was, like, breaking all the records and doing all the stuff last year? Well, he, he actually hasn't been racing. And so there's a big question as to why. Um, he's running at Oregon for the new it's Oregon coach, Jerry Schumacher. They do that a lot, though. They redshirt they freshmen a lot. Right. But there was a big question of why would they redshirt these legendary freshmen who could be potentially contributors. contributors yeah. Now, of course, Rocky Hansen's case definitely is true. Lex Young is moving up. He's contributing now. But yeah. most of the time, true freshmen don't. Um, so Simeon Birnbaum, he's holding the redshirt still. He has not raced yet. Uh, there was talk he might at the conference championship. He didn't. But he's got some teammates at Oregon. Uh, in that freshman class, including Connor Burns, who did race, finished 29th at Pac-12s. Not terrible for his first outing in the season. Um, and I should mention, they have run unattached at some things, just not um, for representing Oregon yet. Um, and so Tyrone Gorzy of Washington now also raced Pac-12s, finished 19th, not far behind Lex Young, 
And that looks good. So he's certainly in, in a decent state now. And Aaron Salmon is now running for NAU. And sounds like he might be dealing with some injury stuff. If you recall, he ended the season last year tearing his IT band Oof. and then still trying to race on it. That's horrible. Not great. No. Um, so there might be some lingering, making sure that he's not starting to get into things too soon kind of situation. So And there's others, but just wanted to share a few updates for you. Okay, we just Andy. talked about like young people. So we talked, yeah. talked about college age. And then for high school, I did oh, want to mention this. you're going to mention Little Ritz. I'm going to mention Addie Ritzenhain, Dathan and Kaylin Ritzenhain's daughter, just won her state championship for a uh, class. And she won easily. She's a sophomore in a time of 17 minutes, 8.2 seconds. Isn't that, wasn't it a record? Mm-hmm. It's a meet record, state meet record. Yep. As a sophomore. Nice job, Addie. Yeah. You recall we mentioned her last year as a freshman. She was the highest finisher for freshman in the uh, Foot, Locker. Foot Locker, except it's not called Foot Locker anymore. Um, oh, right. Whoever the Oops. title sponsor is now of Foot Locker, but everyone still calls it that. So she she's just continuing her onward, upward march. That's Which is super awesome. fun. And we all know Dathan Ritzenhine's success, but also her mom, Caitlin Ritzenhine, was an incredible runner too, both in high school and college. So... It's fun. Yeah. It's fun to see, like, I mean, the legacy do, do, here. Do two legendary runners get together and make legendary babies? <laughs> well, they, they do in this case. So yeah. great work, Addie. Congrats on that. And hopefully we'll see more from her mm -hmm. at the national meets this season. All right. Now let's zoom out from cross country and in hundreds of miles out to the fact. backyard ultras so we we really like talking about backyard ultras because it's just such an interesting thing but this is just crazy so as reported by i run far which i think is just a great name for <laughs> for an organization they have a lot of great articles yeah they do they do this is good stuff um so quick note backyard ultras remember what this is uh, a, a yard is a certain distance measure um, and I don't know exactly when these started, but they started becoming popular around 2011. So it's, it's a relatively new event still. But what you do for a backyard ultra is you run these yards. A yard is 4.16 miles repeating, which remind me of the exact fraction is that four and one eighth. It's a fraction, not a decimal. That's the actual distance, but, um, it's four and change miles. And what you have to do is you have to start each loop at the top of the hour. And if you miss a start time, so if you can't finish the previous loop before the next hour, you're out. And it's a last man standing event, elimination event. So you just keep going until no one else is there. And then if you can finish one more, you win the race. Now, brutal. The question becomes, how many yards can people run doing this? And remember, since it's a last man standing event, it's kind of grueling. <laughs> you just have to keep going until someone else quits. And <laughs> it's, it's partly mind games in that sense too. Well, there's a kind of like a benchmark for the men's side of things. 100 hours or 100 yards is this major benchmark. That means if you do the math, right, uh, that you're running 416 miles, right? 417 basically miles. Also days. <laughs> yeah. A hundred hours. So, um, these guys are usually covering a yard in like 45 to 55 minutes and so if you think about it if you do a yard in 55 minutes you get a five minute break 
and then you have to go again. So just, let's just remember that. We've talked in the past about some of the strategies here. People talk about like micro napping, you know, just lay down for two minutes and hopefully you can micro nap. It's just, it just sounds miserable to me, <laughs> but, but they do it. Um, okay. So how well do they do it? That hundred yard benchmark for men is like legendary status. Not many have ever surpassed it. Well, six of them did all at once in the big dog backyard ultra because they got some big names with some accolades behind them too they did those big names include previous world record holder uh mergen gertz uh the 2021 big dog champ harvey lewis the current world record holder phil gore among others so these guys head to head to head with some of the legends this is one of those events where it's like you really hope that no one else shows up because it's, it, you know, otherwise you just keep going, right? Well, they do it. And six of them are still running after 100 hours. And that's when things start to kind of get a little bit crazy. First, it was Gore and Japan's Teramichi Morishita who call it quits after 100. So they're, they're, they didn't start the 101st. We're done. We're not going to try it. That was that enough. That was the goal. <laughs> that was enough. Um, which, by the way, for Phil Gore uh, of Australia, that was only a shade under his world record, which is 102 yards. So six men are at the world record points now at this point. Well, Gore and, and Morishita call it quits. And then it was Geertz who timed out on the 101st, which means he just couldn't finish it before the end of the time. Otherwise, he was still he was still trying to do it. Uh, so you got three left. You're, uh, you're after 101, which means they're starting the world record. Right, 102 is world record. Are you talking about hours or miles? Um, it's it's hours and yards. And yards. Because it means the same thing, right? Uh, uh, you have to finish a gotcha. yard each yep. hour. So Thank 101 <laughs> hours in, and there's three guys still going, which means that if they were to all be done after the 102nd, that means that they would have a three-way tie for Phil Gore's world record. So they all have it. With the way this works, it doesn't matter exactly how fast you finish any of these things. It's just how many yards you complete is the record. So <laughs> it was Ihor Veres, uh, Bartos Fudali, and Lewis, who are the three still left standing. Well, all three beat the previous world record and finish 103 yards. Wow. So it's new world record, three-man tie going into this. Um, all right. Well, 103 down and Fudali calls it quits. He does not start the 104th. He's like, okay, that was enough. And, mm -hmm. and I can't imagine why. So 103 yards, 104 starts, varies in Lewis, not only complete 104, they finish 105, still going, finish 106, still going, finish 107. The two of them are just like dueling it out. Here's what's interesting. Varies is finishing each yard, like five or six minutes or more ahead of Lewis. So he gets like substantially more rest in between. And Lewis is looking terrible the whole time. Race director, in fact, is de describing this as like, Lewis looked worse than almost everyone by like yard 50. And yet here he is at Keeps 107, on going. still going. What well, a beast. What is just amazing is here they go. They finish 107 and Lewis basically finishes with like a minute to spare, turns around to start 108, and they both take off. And it was Varys who stopped and just turned around and came back. He said, no, I'm done. I can't do it. So all Lewis has to do is finish that 108th yard. In an hour. Within an hour, and he gets the record. Did he do it? Yes. Yes, he, he did. did it. Yep. yep, he did it. So Lewis, miles. Lewis, 450 miles later, 108 hours, 108 yards, 
new world record. Just just try to contemplate this for a moment. He, I can't. He averaged about 52, 53 minutes. Maybe it was a touch more for each yard. So we're talking for 108 hours straight with no more than 5 to 10 minutes of rest. He's just running. And his strategy worked. 150 miles. That's incredible. It's mind-boggling. Oh, I don't want to think about it. I'm done thinking about it. it. Actually, so I'm tired. not because we got to talk about the women. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the women's event was won by French woman Claire Banworth, who bested her own national record by adding 12 additional yards. 12 additional hours. Yep. <laughs> Talk about, well, percentage-wise, that's 25% further than her previous yeah, record. she went 60 altogether. Nice. And four years ago, this event was won overall in 60 yards. So, yeah, this is interesting trivia. All right, so just think about the development of this sport, uh, of this event, I should say, so far. Um, in 2019, the Big Dog Ultra, Backyard Ultra, was won by on the men's side in 60 yards in 2023 four years later the women have surpassed that the women's world record right now is 74 yards mm. held by the way by 57 year old jennifer russo which is brutal that's 311 miles people that's that's what that is all right that's so a lot of miles we're just looking at a, just a, a, an emerging event yeah. of extreme running that is just right now it's just more or less unparalleled there's mm -hmm. just nothing out there quite like it and now the new men's record 108 450 miles crazy <laughs> well we have another world record on the docket for you it seems to be a regular occurrence these days on the world of running there was a u12 world record 5k by a canadian this is a new girl's record with a time of 1728.1. How old is she? 11. She's 11? Yeah. Her name's <laughs> Sawyer Nicholson, and the previous record was eight years ago. And she only beat it by two-tenths of a second, but she didn't know it was on the table because she was handedly winning the race overall for the women at this event that she was yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. At 11 years of age, yep. 11 years of age. Well, if she wants to continue breaking records, it won't be easy. <laughs> no. This one wasn't either, so it's been quite the... Well, quite... she ran only eight, 1855 as a 10-year-old, so she had to drop almost 90 seconds. Which is a lot, yeah, obviously, in a year. 5K. So she's making progress here, but I, it's not... She's a girl. Like, she's just a kid. She's She said that this was not on her radar, that she was just going out and running fast, so hopefully she can be shielded from the pressure. But I do want to mention to all of you that Grace Ping still holds the 12-year-old and 13-year-old records. And these are the times, everyone. Get this. 1644 and then 1625, respectively. So those are some crazy times for these young kids. It's just, it, it blows my mind. You don't say. I haven't run that. I haven't run in the 16, so that's a goal of mine for my life. <laughs> and and it just you know speaks to the fact that things are just constantly moving up, and and it's exciting and fun to see it happen. And while we don't condone the pursuit of youth runners doing crazy and extreme things, we do think that it's just amazing to see what what some of these kids are doing these days. Mm -hmm. So. Lots of excitement. There's always more to talk about, but we got to call it quits somewhere because we've basically run out of time. And so with that, remember that if you've got questions, 
We want to hear them and answer them and interact with you. And the easiest way to do that now is to email, send your emails to questions at a to z running.com. Thank you all for joining us and we'll talk to you next week.